This morning we're starting a new series, um, kind of a mini-series on prayer. Now, when it comes to the topic of prayer, we could spend an entire year discussing, talking, looking at, understanding prayer, and we will have barely scratched the surface on prayer. It, it is a deep, it is uh, immense, it is mystical and spiritual, as, as it were. But I don't want, you know, to lose you, so we're going to do a mini-series. And as I told um, the prayer team in my office this morning, a mini-series is anything less than 27 weeks. This mini-series will probably be four or five weeks, so you'll be okay. But as a, as a pastor, one of the great privileges that I get to have that I don't know how many of you have had is being with people as they begin their journey with Jesus. I get to talk with them. I get to counsel them. I get to give them direction and guidance. And probably one of the most exciting parts of meeting with new believers is when they step into having a conversation with God for the very first time. Hearing somebody call Jesus by his name and telling Jesus how much they love him for the very first time is one of the most thrilling things I get to hear come out of somebody's mouth. It's absolutely phenomenal. And, and it is one of those Patterns that we want to help people to develop in their life as they start to grow in their relationship with Jesus. But, you know, there are others who, after years of belonging to the community of faith, really don't have much of a prayer life at all. It's kind of weak. It, it, it's almost non-existence. And I think that, that the reason that is, is is mostly due to the fact that many people have the wrong idea about what prayer is. A lot of times when people come to the, to the place where they come to prayer, they will bring with them a list of things that they want God to do for them. They, they come in and they say, hey God, it's me again. By the way, here are the things I really need from you. And then they kind of go, bloop, 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 and they go right through their list. And then at the end of it, they'll say, in Jesus' name, and by the way, hey, good talk, let's do it again sometime. And they get up and they leave and they walk out of that moment with God. Some of them have this understanding that all you need to do is ask whatever you will, and it will be granted to you. Jesus talked a whole lot about seeking about asking, about knocking. He spent a whole lot of time discussing prayer. He came to the point where he would even tell told his disciples, until now, you have never asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive it. And, and so there are a lot of ideas that it's just coming and asking and seeking for things and for desires, and for wants, and we've got all this stuff going on, and as long as I ask, as long as I do it in Jesus' name, God is obligated to give it to me. 
However, Jesus in John chapter 15, he said this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I want you to to see that first word right there, if. That's the conditional word in what Jesus is saying. Because a lot of times we believe that prayer is unconditional, just like God's love for us is unconditional. But prayer is not unconditional. There are some conditions that God wants us to meet in order for us to receive from Him. This is one of them. If. If you abide in my words. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've given you all the instruction you need for life. So step into it. Immerse yourself into it. Learn what it has to say to you. Continue to let my word soak into your life. And then as you come... You're going to know how. Why did Jesus ask us to, to abide in his word? Because when we abide in his word, then we find out what his will is. And when we know what his will is, then we're going to pray according to God's will. A lot of times we get ahead of that. Prayer is much more than just telling God what he has to do for you. And much of what I've learned about prayer and a lot of what I'm going to share with you about prayer other than scripture comes from a group of guys that I highly respect. Guys like Tim Keller and Martin Lloyd-Jones and Fred Hartley III, Andrew Murray and J.I. Packard. Those guys have written a lot about prayer. They understand prayer. They have a prayer life that, that I actually am very jealous of and I'm trusting that God is going to deepen my life in prayer with him. And so I want you just to know that as we go through this, these are the guys that that I may not directly quote them all the time, but understand that it comes from these guys. Matter of fact, Tim Keller says this, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we desire most. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. Now, when we think about prayer and we talk about prayer, there are many kinds of prayers to be prayed for sure. We have prayers of supplication. We have prayers of thanksgiving and praise. We have to make our requests known. But there are basically two views on the subject. One view will emphasize prayer as a means to experience God's love and to know oneness with God. And those who bring this view as their primary focus of prayer promise a life of peace and continual resting in God. The other view sees the essence of prayer not as inward resting, but as a calling on God to bring His kingdom. Prayer is viewed as, res- as a wrestling match, often, or perhaps maybe just ordinarily, 
a wrestling match without a clear sense of God's immediate presence. But here's the question a lot of people find themselves pondering. Is prayer a peaceful adoration or assertive supplication? Is it a peaceful adoration or assertive supplication? What is it? Well, here's what I think. I think that if we take the stance on one or the other, we'll be driving a wedge between seeking the personal communion with God and seeking the advance of his kingdom in hearts and in the world. I don't think we should drive a wedge to that place. I think that if they are kept together, both views are kept together, then communion will not be just wordless, mystical awareness on the one hand, and our, peti- our petitions will not be a way of procuring God's favor on the other. Prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. There is an awe that we need to know of praising the glory, the intimacy of finding his grace, the struggle of asking his help, all of which will lead us to know the spiritual reality of his presence in our life. J.I. Packard sums it up best in the title of one of his books on prayer. He says, prayer is finding our way through duty to delight. From duty to delight. That is the journey of prayer. Now, I know that sometimes prayer and, and the topic of prayer is probably not the most exciting topic that a guy can preach on. We all like to hear the story of David and Goliath as my son Tyson was telling the story to Ava last night. She's one and a half. And he was telling her how David put the stone right in the middle of Goliath's forehead and he fell to the ground and then David chopped his head off. Just what a one and a half year old wants to have as a vision when they go to bed at night. Perfect. We love those stories. Prayer, on the other hand, not so much a real barn burner. We kind of get into the place where we're going like, oh boy, here we go. We're going to talk about prayer again. Are we going to be guilted into something again? Probably. I'll try and guilt you. Usually it doesn't work that well, so we'll try love as well. Um, and, and the most obvious place to start when we start talking about prayer is to go to Jesus, because after all, Jesus had these incredible moments of prayer with his Father. I mean, we record the times when Jesus went alone by himself to pray, when he went into the garden to pray, when he went to the usual place to pray, when he pulled away from the crowd so that he could be refreshed in prayer. We hear all those times where Jesus went off to pray, but we don't know what he prayed at those times. We do, however, know some of the prayers, like John chapter 17. It's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. If you've never read that, read that, because it's going, it is going to absolutely bring great encouragement to your heart. We also know that Jesus, one of the, the requests, the most, the, the thing that we really pick up about the disciples is they asked Jesus for one thing. They asked him for one thing. Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to put together good theology. Teach us how to be missionaries. Teach us how to, to use the gifts 
They just said, teach us to pray. So, you know, that would be the obvious place we want to start, is what Jesus did. Okay, I don't do the obvious very often or very well, so we're going to go somewhere else this morning. We're going to start with Paul in Ephesians 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might? This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. He, he knows the believers there. He knows what they're going through. He's heard the reports. And one of the things that, he, that this church, these people at this church in Ephesus are having to deal with is that they are under a lot of stress. As a church, they are feeling the stress of where they live and what's going on. They really live in some really difficult times. Politically, they are oppressed. Economically, they were challenged for daily needs. And physically, they had many health challenges. And many of them were separated from loved ones of their, their family. They weren't around them. They missed them. They weren't able to spend time with them. And so here is their existence, which was far less secure than the one we have today. Yet this prayer and the other prayers Paul offers for the churches also the Philippians church and the Colossian church, you don't see one petition for a better emperor or for protection from godless and liberal agendas or even for better physical conditions. Paul does not pray for the goods we would usually have at the top of our list of requests. So, is Paul saying it's wrong to pray for those things? No. That's not what he's saying. Matter of fact, he already knew that Jesus invited us to ask for our daily bread, that God would deliver us from evil. In Paul's first letter to his his young apprentice, Timothy, Paul instructs the church to pray for peace, for good government, and for the needs of our fellow Christ followers and for our own needs. So then Paul's not giving us a universal prayer model like Jesus did. Rather, he reveals what he asks most often for his friends. The one thing he desires the most for those people who are in the churches that he planted and the people who have become near and dear to his heart, the one thing he wants them to know above everything else, and that is for them to know God better. To know God better. Of all the things he wants them to know, it's this. Know God better. That's the primary focus of prayer. That's what he's saying to them. You need, through your prayer, you will know God better. As you spend time in prayer, you will know God better. But it's the same thing about being in God's Word. As we are in God's Word, we know God better. That's the primary purpose of worship. 
to know God better. And that is the primary purpose of gathering together like we are right now. And we fellowship and we worship together and we just rub shoulders with each other. The whole purpose is to know God better. It's not for you. It's not to make you feel good about yourself. If you came to church this morning to make you need to um, feel better about who you are, you're just kind of feeling down a little bit and you need a little pep talk, that's great. Come and see Courtney. She'll give you a hug. She'll tell you how great you are. She'll love on you and send you on your way. Well, you could go see her at her office. She'd do the same thing there. But if you're coming to church... You want to get to know God better. That's why we come. That's the reason we sing those songs we just got done singing is we're reminding each other about the wonders and glories of Jesus so that we get to know him better. But here's here's what Paul really wants the church to know. He wants them to know God better. But if we go to these places, and I mean in these places, if we go to prayer, if we go to reading the word, worship, gathering together for any other purpose than getting to know God better, we will come away frustrated, dissatisfied, and disillusioned with God because he's not meeting my needs the way I expect him to. How many times have you ever heard that people say something to you like, I, you know, I tried church, but it just wasn't for me because God didn't do what he said he was going to do. That's not true. God always does what he says he's going to do. The problem is, is God didn't do what you told God to do. And by the way, you're a hunk of clay. You're a piece of pot. You're a broken, cracked pot. And he's the potter, he's the master, he's the one that formed it. And who are you as a piece of clay to tell the master what he's supposed to do with you? If he wanted the sovereignty of God, in all of this, I want you to understand this, the sovereignty of God, do you know what I mean when I say that? Let me help you. When I say the sovereignty of God, it means God has absolute right to do whatever he wants to because he's God. If he can't do whatever he wants to, then he's not God. And we might as well disband, go home, and start planting gardens and put up rock idols in our gardens or something. I don't know, something silly. What Paul wants us to know is that we know God better by the way the things that he's requesting in prayer for us. Verse 18 in this says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. To have the eyes of your heart enlightened with a particular truth means to have it penetrate and grip us so deeply that it changes the whole person. It doesn't just change a little portion of us. It completely changes everything we know, everything we think, everything we believe gets changed because we have come to the place where our eyes of our heart, that's this part right here, it's the part of body, soul, and spirit. It's the part that make, helps us make intellectual and spiritual decisions all at the same time. That's where God resides and he works within us. When the eyes of our heart are open to the reality of who God is, things change in our life. 
It's not necessarily our circumstances that change. It's our view of things that change. The way that this works itself out for us is when our hearts' eyes are enlightened to the truth, we not only understand it cognitively, but emotionally we find God's holiness wondrous and beautiful. Voluntarily, we avoid attitudes and behavior that would displease or honor, dishonor him. Out of this passage, there's three other things I want to draw your attention to. The first one is, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You won't understand certain things. You won't be able to get your mind around some spiritual truth. You won't be able to really grasp what it means the sovereignty of God in your life. If you don't have the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, and the knowledge of who he is. That's what God wants. That's what Paul is praying for every person in the church is to receive the Holy Spirit who gives us the wisdom and the understanding and the revelation of it. That's what we want to pray and ask God to do for us as we open up his word. That's the great thing about it, is when we come to the point where we're going to open God's Word and we're going to read it, to just open it and read it, nilly-willy, is going to be pointless because we haven't asked the author of this book to be involved in what we're doing. When we take the time and we say to God, would you please reveal to my heart what it is you have for me today, God will always answer that prayer. So, it would behoove us not to ask God to come and join us for for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him to open our hearts, eyes to be enlightened. The next thing is to know what is the hope to which He has called you. What is the hope to which He has called you? Our hope is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. It's a hope that the world has no clue about. They have no understanding of what we're talking about when we say our hope is in Christ. They don't get it because they are spiritually blind. But what we can do is we can pray and ask God to enlighten them, to open their eyes, to hear what the Spirit has to say to them. And the third thing is what the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. God has empowered each and every one of you who has walked in faith with Jesus Christ. He, he, there's this immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. Immeasurable. You can't measure it. You can't, you, you can't climb over it. You can't get around it. You cannot dig under it. You cannot completely understand it. It is immeasurable and it is greater. And matter of fact, if God were to reveal everything that you need to that you know you don't know about him here if god were to reveal his very nature to you to the fullest extent it would fry your little pea brain you would be drooling on yourself at the end of the moment with god and then you would just go like just take me to heaven cuz i i'm done i'm undone so what paul says he wants the spirit to give power to grasp all the past present and future benefits which we have received when we believed in Christ. Paul wants the church to know that knowing God better is far more important than having a change of circumstances. 
we are more prone to ask God to change our circumstances than we are to ask God to reveal his greatness in the circumstances. We have become too accustomed and we've become too... Afraid to live right where we are in the circumstances God has placed us in. We don't like the circumstances. They're not fun. But what we're saying is, God, you need to show up and change my circumstances so I can have fun, so I can get to know you better. Because I can't get to know you in bad circumstances. That is a lie straight from the father of lies. Because we are more disposed to having things change rather than to know God better in our current circumstances. But God wants us to know him better no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. Knowing God better is far more important than having a change of circumstances. Without a deep sense of the manifest presence of Jesus, good circumstances can lead to overconfidence and spiritual indifference. And what I mean by that is everything's going fine. I really don't need to spend time with God. Who needs God? Look at my life. It's awesome. And we totally forget about God. On the other hand, Without this enlightened heart of the manifest presence of Jesus, bad circumstances can lead to discouragement and despair. And the love of God would be an abstraction rather than an infinitely consoling presence as it should be. Knowing God better is what we must have above all else if we're going to handle all the circumstances of life that we find ourselves in. When I was first married, we had children. We had stupidity because we got ourselves into stupid debt. There's some debt that's not stupid, like medical bills, those kind of things. That's not stupid debt. That's, that's just where we live and what happens. But stupid debt is buying things that you should never have bought, thinking that you can pay it off. And, yeah, I mean, it's just stupid debt. And so I can remember one time as I was reading through Proverbs that I read a proverb that became one of my prayers for my life. And it simply goes like this. God, don't give me so much wealth that I forget about you. But don't make me so poor that I have to steal to feed my family. I'd like to try wealth once in a while, though. <laughs> Paul's concern is that as Christ followers, when we do the hard work of coming constantly and continually before God, the simple joy of knowing God better, it's that out of this place when we get to know God better, we're able to receive all other kinds of good and beneficial attributes of God 
that we wouldn't otherwise know. One of the things that I think is really important is that most contemporary people, that's us in modern days, we base our inner life on outward circumstances. The inner peace is based on people's valuation, on our social status, on prosperity, and upon performance. We feel really good about our inner self when those outer things are told that they're really great in us. If we give priority to the outer life, our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We will be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination. We will have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. I don't know about you, but if there's one thing I want people to say about me is there's Ken Simon, and he's a man of integrity. I want to hear that. I, I don't, it's not going to make my life better or worse, but if they say that about me, I'm hoping that the reason they're saying that about me is because it's actually true, that I do have integrity. The last thing I want to hear is there is a man who lacks integrity. And I'm talking about spiritual integrity. And so how do we, how do we know outwardly we will need to project confidence and spiritual, emotional health and wholeness, while inwardly we may be filled with self-doubts, anxieties, and self-pity or old grudges. We won't want to know how to go into the inner rooms of the heart and see clearly what is there and then deal with it. In short, unless we put a priority on the inner life, we will turn ourselves into hypocrites. To discover the real you, look at what you spend your time thinking about when no one's looking, when nothing is forcing you to think about anything in particular. You may want to be seen as a humble, unassuming person, but do you take the initiative to confess your sins before God? You may wish to be perceived as a positive, cheerful person, but do you habitually thank God for everything you have and praise Him for who He is? You may speak a great deal about what a blessing your faith is and how you just really love the Lord, but if you are prayerless, is that really true? If you aren't joyful, humble, faithful, and private before God, then what you want to appear to be on the outside won't match what you truly are on the inside. Prior to Jesus giving the disciples what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus offered some preliminary ideas, including this one found in Matthew's Gospel. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, there are far too many people who know how to speak eloquently, and they love to stand up and give a 
passionate public prayer that sounds so eloquent and sounds so great and is so wonderful that it just stirs your heart and you're just like, oh, I wish I could pray like that. And Jesus says that that moment when they receive their accolade for such a wonderful prayer, that is their reward. It's when we go into our closets, into our time, where it's just me and Jesus, and we get either down on our knees or we find that moment of solitude and silence before the Lord and we open up our heart and we start to confess our lives to Him and we just start to reorder our love for Him and we start to take everything that Jesus has called us to do and we say, this is who I am and this is what I need from you and this is how I need to grow. Then, at that moment, God meets us and gives us what we need most at that time and that's Him and His Holy Spirit. The infallible test of spiritual integrity, Jesus says, is your private prayer life. Giving priority to the inner life doesn't mean an individualistic life. When we talk about a private prayer life, it doesn't mean that you remove yourself from the community of faith. What it means is is that when you spend time over here with Jesus, then you immerse yourself into the community of faith. People know that you have been with Jesus. It It entails us being in the community, the church, participation in corporate worship, as well as private devotion, instruction in the Bible, as well as silent meditation. At the heart of all the various ways of knowing God is both public and private prayer. If you want to know something about a person's relationship with God, you can learn it by by spending time and listening to someone pray. You can tell if a man or woman is really on speaking terms with God. It is quite possible to become elaborate, theologically sound, earnest in your public prayers without cultivating a rich private prayer life. You can't manufacture unmistakable note of the reality that only comes from speaking not toward God, but with God. The depths of private prayer and public prayer grow together. My heart's cry for you is the thing that Paul said to Timothy when he wrote him his, wrote the first letter to him, where he said this, I desire then that every place, the men and women, should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. You see this, you know, at the beginning of the service, that's what we're doing. We're lifting up holy hands And we're asking God to come and to teach us and to show us, to help us learn, to be empowered to obey the word that God has given to us. That's why we lift up our hands. We want to receive. We want to make it an act of submission to him. And so today, some of you are maybe making excuses in your mind why you don't pray. I don't have enough time. It takes too long. You don't, you know, I don't know how to pray. 
I'm not very good at it. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know that my prayers will ever be answered. I think that I'm too sinful of a person for God to hear my prayers. Well, if that's the case, I can tell you right from the beginning that the one prayer that God loves to hear and will answer is the prayer of a repentant heart. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned against you. You want to read a really good prayer if, you, if you're struggling with knowing how to confess your sin? Well, there's this really great one, and this, isn't even, this is free. It's not in my notes. So you guys, this is a free one right here, okay? Um, and I just want to encourage you to go into Psalms because Psalms chuck full of amazing prayers. Psalm 51, listen to this. I'm just going to read you the first two verses of Psalm 51. This is from David, King David, after he'd been caught from having adultery with Bathsheba, murdering her husband, and trying to cover it up. And here's what David prays. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You want to know how to start a prayer with Jesus? Right there. <laughs> he is going to go like, woohoo, you finally got it. Yeah, let me give you a little cleansing here. No, let's move on. Here's what I know about learning how to pray. It's like, it's like what we've talked about a lot before. We talked about this with your kids. That the way you live your life is the way they're going to live their lives because they're going to catch what you're doing more than what you're saying. So more is caught than taught. So if you're saying, I'm not very good at praying, I don't know how to pray, I don't know where to pray, I don't know how to start in prayer, I don't know what it looks, if you're making all these excuses, what I'm telling you right now is, especially if you're a woman, tomorrow at 4 o'clock, right back there at those chairs, Women will be gathering for prayer. And if God's stirring your heart, you need to show up and say, I don't know how to pray. And they're going to say, just join in in what we're doing. The best way, I believe, for a person to learn how to pray, besides with others, is in your own prayer life. You know, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to get into our prayer closet and we want to pray in our minds. We talk to God in our minds. And that's, that's fine. That's great. But I think it, there is something to be said when you use the words out loud. When you pray out loud, even by yourself. Back when I was a youth pastor, the, the town I lived in, we had seven high schools in that town. I had students in each one of those high schools. And so I would go up on the hill that overlooked the valley. And from where I would go up there to pray... I could see each one of the campuses, all seven campuses. I could see all seven of them. And so I would start, and I'd start praying for the kids out in Sahali and the kids at the Christian school. And I would just, kids at, at Kamloops Central High, 
And I would just go through, and I would start praying for him. And I would be standing on this rock out overlooking the river and all the rest. I mean, it was magnificent. And I'd stand up there, and I'm praying out loud, and I'm talking, and I've got my hands, and I got pretty animated with it. And all of a sudden, you hear people laughing, and you turn, and there's a group of hikers hiking by, and they're going like, Who do you think you are, Moses? (laughs) No. Maybe I'm Elijah, and you tease the bald-headed prophet, and a bear will come out and eat you. (laughs) Go ahead, try it. I'm just telling you that the significance of praying out loud, using your voice, even when you're by yourself, is phenomenal. Don't neglect the gift of private prayer out loud. Come and join on Monday, women. If you're going like, I can't do Monday. Listen, Tuesday at noon, we call it the river because you can jump in, jump out. You can come for as long as you have. We go from noon to one. And right now, it's me and Dick and Mary and we're always looking for God to bring someone else that goes like, hey, we're going to pray with you today and we would probably do a little jig, right, Mary? A little dance? Now, here's what I want you to know, is that over the next number of weeks, as I continue to talk about prayer, you're going to hear me inviting you to come and join us for prayer. Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep inviting you. And then there's going to be a point when I'm going to say, on a certain Saturday night, and I'm not telling you when it is, but on a certain Saturday night, I'm going to ask for a bunch of you to come. And we're going to come right here to this building. And we're going to just kind of place ourselves around in the building, not necessarily sitting next to each other or standing. And we're going to place around, and then we're going to spend some time in prayer. That could be 15 or 20 minutes. It might go to 45 minutes. It might blow our mind, and God might show up, and we might go an hour and a half I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know that God is calling us to prayer because here's what happens when we start to pray. When we get serious about prayer and we decide we're going to be a church of prayer and not a church who prays because a church who prays is just like every other church, but a church of prayer is the church that sees God's hand moving in the hearts and lives of men and women in this church and in this community and people get saved. Their lives are transformed and we're doing what God's called us to do. But it only happens because people have made the effort to come and give up some of their time for God to work through them as they pray. I'm going to give you that time. I don't know when it is yet. But here's what I want you to take away with you today. Number one, there's, I'm going to give you one thing I don't want you to do and I'm going to give you one thing I want you to do. Number one, Do not pray for your circumstances to change. Don't ask God to come and change your circumstances. Don't do that. Do this. Ask God to reveal himself so you know him better in the circumstances you're in right now. Ask God to reveal himself to you so you know him better in your circumstances right now. Amen? Father, we thank you that when we come, just as I am right now, praying to you and asking you to do something, that you hear 
our voices, that you don't turn your backs on us, that you don't give up, that you don't say you're not doing enough. You just simply say, come and make your request known. And so I pray, God, that you would stir in our hearts a passion, a desire, a a longing to come and meet with you so we can see what you will do when your people gather together in your name and they lift up holy hands in prayer that you will move among them and people's lives will be transformed. We ask for your presence to make it clear to us you're working through us as we're doing the heavy lifting in prayer. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.